You know, I want to invite you to turn uh, to Matthew chapter 21 in your Bible. We've been in Matthew chapter 21 for three weeks now, so that's a pretty good indication um, that this is a pretty significant chapter. It's a major um, moment in the gospel and the story of Jesus and what's, uh, what's happening in his life and what's unfolding and I'm um, excited to dig into it with you today. We're going to be looking at this idea of uh, what happens at the moment that you realize that you were on the wrong side of things. Uh, it's a common theme. Uh, we see it in the movies. Uh, spoiler alert, if you still haven't seen Avatar yet, you're like 10 years behind, right? <laughs> um, but... Uh, but right, that, that movie, it's, it's one of the main themes, right? There's a guy, he's a soldier, he's sent to this, this planet to deal with this hostile alien uh, race that's there, and when he gets there, he comes to realize that, that those are actually the good guys, that, that the people that he's represented are the ones that are coming in and trying to steal uh, their land from them. And so when he comes to that moment of realization, he decides that he is going to fight on the right side of things, right? It's, um, uh, it's one of these things. It doesn't always have to be that epic and that grand. Sometimes it'll happen uh, in, in your family life, right? Or with a friend where you're trying to call somebody and you're like, oh, why won't they answer the phone? I'm going to give them a piece of my mind when I get there. It's so disrespectful, whatever. And then you come in and you find out that they were doing something far more significant than answering the phone and you feel sheepish and you have to uh, quietly... Um, uh, repent, and hopefully you never actually said anything out loud so they don't even know what was going through your mind. It's all hypothetical, Trina. This never happens in our marriage. But, uh, but if that were to happen, hypothetically speaking, what do you do at that moment? Do you, uh, do you acknowledge that, uh, that your righteous cause, your, your source of ambition, your source of, of drive and purpose was wrong all along, and do you deconstruct it and go in the direction that, that you now know to be right? Or do you double down and say, hey, look, this is who I am. I, I can't change. Uh, I, I've set this course, and even though I now know this is the wrong course, I'm just going to stick with it because the pain of changing is too great. What will you do in those moments? That's, a, that's what we're going to look at today uh, because the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders who have been challenging Jesus are brought to that, um, that very moment in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And uh, if, you, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, Jesus has finally come to Jerusalem. It's kind of the pinnacle of his ministry. He's come, and he knows that he's going to be crucified. And so he has a, what was, what's known as the triumphal entry. He enters into the city. The people are, are, are shouting Hosanna, and they're praising him. And, uh, and uh, the Pharisees, um, they can't take it. They're, they're mad. They're jealous of Jesus. They're angry at Jesus. And, uh, and so as Keith preached about last week, they come to him and say, whose authority do you do this with? What gives you the right to do all of these things? And he kind of gives them this trick question. He, he says, hey, will you, what do you think about John the Baptist? Was his ministry from God or was it from man? And they come over and they huddle and they kind of say, well, if, if we say it's from God, then Jesus is going to say, well, G John said that I'm <laughs> the son of God, so you need to listen to him because it's from God. But if we say it's from man, then the whole crowd is going to get mad at us because they all believe he's a prophet from God. And if we say that he was just teaching man's thoughts, then the crowd is going to rebel on us. So they, after holding up, they go back to Jesus and they're like, yeah, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that question. And then Jesus is like, well, then I don't have to answer your question. <laughs> so um, so they're, they're challenging and questioning his authority. And then he goes in, he tells a parable about two sons, one that said he wasn't going to serve his dad, but then ultimately went out, and the other one who said he would do it, but never did it. 
and he's pointing to the Pharisees which one they are, and then he tells a second parable to kind of hammer the, the point home. And we're really looking at the end of Jesus throughout Scripture has been engaging with the Pharisees, almost kind of pleading with them, trying to show them the error of their ways so that they would have time to turn and repent. But the time is running out. Uh, they're, they're running out of opportunities to respond to him. And so this is Jesus' uh, kind of really uh, significant plea to them and ultimately to each one of us uh, to repent and to come into a right relationship with him. So let me pray. We'll dive into the scripture and we'll begin to take a look at it. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you this morning uh, just grateful, grateful for so many things, God. Uh, grateful to, um, uh, to have a place to meet and... and um, clothes and food, and there's so many blessings that we can easily take for granted, God, but, um, but most of all, we thank you for your word, uh, that, uh, that you are a God who loves us, that you're good, and you're not distant, you're not un unknowable, but you want us to know you, you want us to, to get closer to you, and that's why you gave us the Bible, and so I thank you that we have it, that we can study it, that we can read it, and that even today, that we would walk out of here closer to you than when we walked in the door. Uh, God, uh, we pray that you would do this through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 21, Jesus looks to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and he says this. He says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and he leased it to tenants and he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and they beat one they killed another, and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Really? <laughs> what gave it away, right? <laughs> when he said, the kingdom will be taken away from you, and give it right? They're, they're quick on the uptake, right? I think he's talking, to, I think he's talking about us, right? <laughs> That's my Jim Gaffigan uh, impression of Jim Gaffigan doing random person. All right, anyways. Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of what the crowds would do, so they just let him go. Um, ultimately, we're going to get to a, a place where we're going to look at um, the heart of the Pharisees, what, their, what, what was twisted and wrong and turned in their heart, and look at the ways that some of those same things exist in our own hearts. But before we get there, I just want to help break down this parable to make sure that we're all on the same page, so that we kind of understand what it is that Jesus is, is highlighting and pointing out here. Uh, this morning. And so let's look at some of the different elements. First one is, is the master of the house, uh, the one who planted the vineyard. This, this represents God in the parable. You probably figured that out, right? And um, it's not only significant to recognize that this is representative of God, but it's, it's interesting to see what it shows us about God. 
First of all, look at how it shows God's incredible nurturing care, right? He, he, uh, he planted the vineyard. He put the fence around it. He dug out the wine vat. He built a tower so that they could watch for intruders and for fires. And, then, and, and so there's all these layers of, of protection and care and, and nurturing that, that, that is a reflection of the nature and the heart of God. God cares for his people. He loves his people and he wants to protect them. But the thing that's most amazing probably in this parable is the incredible patience of God that is on display, right? Um, imagine that you were a landlord and you had a, an apartment that you let out and, um, and the person uh, who was renting it from you was behind on rent and so you sent uh, somebody, uh, one of your friends over to collect rent from them and imagine that tenant like beat up the person that you sent over there and kicked them out and, uh, and left them bloody and bruised on the side of the road. Would you keep sending other servants and, and uh, other people back? Right? No, you wouldn't do that, right? You'd, you'd be like, hey, I'm taking this person to court. I'm justified. I'm righteous in saying that they are wrong and they deserve judgment, and I'm going to take it to them. But, but that's not what he does in this. He keeps reaching out. He keeps pleading with them to do the right thing. So he sends servant after servant. Um, they, they beat them. They abuse them. They ultimately kill them. And finally he says, well, I'll send my son. If I send my son, surely, surely they'll listen to my son. And when he sends the son, they kill his son. Now, at this point, is anybody who's listening to the story saying, oh, man, the master of that vineyard, he is a harsh and cruel man. How could he, how could he judge those people for what they did, right? Nobody's saying that at this point, right? Everybody's saying, wow, I can't believe he waited that long. I can't believe he gave them that many chances. And, and clearly, this is a picture of God's action in our world. God loves us, and he sends message after message and warning after warning and he speaks to us and he and he calls to us and he, and it says in Romans that he reveals himself through nature and so when you go out and you see a beautiful sunset or you see a beautiful canyon or you see the the ocean waves you never look out and think look at this beautiful thing that i created right you look at it and you think wow this is beautiful the the one who made this deserves praise the the one who made this is is good the one who made this is is worthy of my worship and that's God, right? He reveals himself through nature. He reveals himself through his word. And over and over again, uh, he reveals himself. And then ultimately, he reveals himself through his son, Jesus. And so, so many times people trip up against this idea. They say, well, how could, how could God ever judge people? How could God ever send anyone to hell? I think the most amazing thing is God's incredible patience, right? That, that each person is given opportunity after opportunity to respond and ultimately even given the opportunity to respond to his very son. He said, if I send Jesus and, and Jesus shows them what my heart looks like in, in flesh, if he, if he loves people and cares for people and teaches with wisdom and, 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 if he, and if he heals and restores, certainly when they see that, then they'll respond. Then, then they'll, their hearts will turn back to me. But when we harden our hearts against Jesus... Who can look at God and say, ah, oh, he was wrong to judge, right? He's, he's, he's incredibly patient with us. And this is on display in this parable, right? In the same way as a preacher that, uh, that, that our preaching here at the church needs to mirror the heart of God, right? We want, to, we want to reach out in every way that we can. We want to appeal to logic and reason. We want to appeal to your heart. We want to appeal to your sense of right, rightness and, and justice. Uh, we want to appeal to all of those things in hopes that you will come to see how beautiful and wonderful the gospel is. But ultimately, we also have to uh, hold you accountable. We have to say like, hey, listen, God wants you to come to him. He loves you. He's pursuing you. He desires you. But if you reject him and reject him and reject him, ultimately, there will come a moment of judgment. 
there will come a point where you, where you can't reject him anymore, right? That, that, that there, there will come a moment when your choice has to be made. And if we love you, we're going to represent uh, God's word in the way that, that his word represents it. And so, so he loves you. He wants you to, to see his beauty and be drawn to him. But ultimately, uh, he commands your obedience. And both are true. And both are right of God. So a couple other things. So, so God is the master uh, of the house, the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is Israel itself. And I know what you were all were thinking as I was reading that. You're like, oh, he's talking about Isaiah chapter 5, right? Like that's immediately what jumped to your mind, right? And clearly that's not right for most of us. When I read it, I didn't think, oh, Isaiah chapter 5, right? But, um, but keep in mind that the, the nation of Israel, the Hebrews at this time, were very steeped in, in Scripture that they, uh, it was it was taught to them from the time they were young, especially the prophets, the prophet Isaiah. And so when Jesus starts talking about this vineyard, they're thinking, wow, that sounds really familiar. And so what he's referencing is Isaiah chapter 5, and it'll be up on the screen here for you, uh, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this and listen to how familiar it is and how much it resonates with what Jesus said. He said, uh, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Sound familiar, right? It's exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Right? It's God's patience on display again. What more could I have done? I said, servant of son. I even sent my very own son. What more could I have done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Verse 7, in case you weren't sure yet. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The vineyard is, is the nation of Israel that God, uh, he, 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 he gathered them as his own people. He put a hedge around them. It talks about the fence and the wine press and the tower. These are representative of, of the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them his law to provide a hedge, a fence around them so that they would know how to live within God's will. He made them culturally and distinct and unique from other nations. Uh, he protected them. He watched over them. He gave them the temple as a place to worship. Right? Like he set all this up for them. And then he put tenants over them, the leaders, the kings, the prophets, the, uh, not the prophets, the kings, uh, the religious leaders, the high priests, uh, those that would uh, be put in a position to shepherd the flock and, and to cultivate fruit. And the fruit that they were trying to gather is an obedient heart towards God, right? The fruit that they were meant to be cultivating was a heart uh, that would say yes to God, where God's kingdom would reign, a, a heart that would be obedient to God's will. Uh, that would seek after God's desires, that would move away from sin and move towards obedience. Like, that's the fruit uh, that they were trying to bear out. The servants that were sent over and over again represent the Old Testament prophets that were sent to the nation of Israel time and time again and said, hey, you're straying from God. You need to come back. You're straying from God. A couple months ago, we did the series on the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest prophets to ever live, right? And, um, and it might seem prestigious and awesome to be a prophet, but his life was pretty rough, right? He was, he, was, he was given this word from the Lord. He went and delivered it. And when he delivered it, 
uh, Queen Jezebel said, if you're still alive tomorrow, uh, uh, my job isn't done, right? Like she threatened his life and he had to run off and live in a cave and, uh, and drink water out of a stream and then the stream dried up. And so being a prophet was a tough job. You were always being rejected. You were always proclaiming a hard truth that no one wanted to hear. Uh, they often were beaten and killed uh, for, for standing up for what God told them to do. And so, so God sent these servants to his nation over and over again to try and bring their heart back to him. And then, as I'm sure you've guessed, the son in the parable is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the son. That's not a surprise, right? We understand that Jesus is the one who was sent, the very son of God, who was ultimately taken outside of the vineyard, outside of the city, and crucified by those that should have, should have acknowledged him. And he talks ultimately about a time of judgment. He says, what should we do? What should be done? And he said, they should be given to a miserable death. Right? And so it points to this, there's a, there's a moment that will come of judgment, and there's, there's kind of twofold to this. One is at the end of time when we all stand before God to give an account for our lives, that there will be an ultimate judgment that happens then, but, but there was also a, a temporal judgment that happened uh, over the religious leaders and over the temple. In AD 33, when, when Jesus was crucified, the veil was torn in the temple that separated uh, the Holy of Holies from the remainder of the temple, and, and it was this symbolic um, tearing of the authority because now Jesus became the temple. Jesus became the place that people went to get closer to God. Jesus was the mediator instead of the high priest. And so the, 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 the earthly temple was replaced with a better and true temple, Jesus. Um, and then in AD 70, uh, the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple. Uh, they, they knocked every stone down. They destroyed Jerusalem. They killed people. It was a horrible, if you read historically about it, it was just this gruesome, horrible time um, in the history of Israel, and to this very day, 2,000 years later, the temple has not been rebuilt, right? So, so a hard judgment came that was talked about in Isaiah chapter 5. It says, hey, since you haven't borne the, the fruit that you were to, I'm going to take the fence down. I'm going to allow thorns and briars to grow up, right? And, that's, and, that's, and it's still in the news today, right? You'll see it about there's an there's a, there's a Islamic mosque uh, that's on the temple mound, uh, the Jews hold uh, the Temple Mount as a holy site and want to rebuild the temple. And there's all this conflict over this tiny little square footage of real estate in Israel to this very day because of what we're reading about in this passage right here. Finally, as if it wasn't enough, <laughs> as if there wasn't enough layers of meaning and, and everything in there, Jesus talks about this stone. Uh, and he says, haven't you read the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's making a reference to Psalm 118. And look at the words of Psalm 118. Uh, beginning in verse 19, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone, here it is, the part that Jesus referenced, right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So next time you go to Aldi and you buy a carton of eggs and you see that little scripture verse on there, you'll think about Jesus as the stone that the builders rejected, right? Um, look at verse 25. He says, save us, we pray. O Lord, in Hebrew, that word save us, we pray is the word Hosanna. It's what the people were shouting as he entered into the city just two days before this. Um, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. 
Jesus says, in case you haven't figured it out yet, all of history is unfolding right now in this moment, in this week, that, that the things that were prophesied about and the things that will come, it's all intersecting right here and now. And, and, and remember just two days ago when the people were shouting Hosanna and you're like, stop shouting Hosanna. Hosanna was not a word that was used all the time. It's not all over scripture. It's very specifically right here in Psalm 118. And it's very specifically the thing that they were shouting on the day that he was entering into the, to the city just two days before this. And so Jesus is saying, don't you see what's happening here? It's right, it's, the, it's like the end of the usual suspects, right? When all the, all the clues start being un, 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 unfurled and Kaiser Soze is right. Has anybody seen unusual usual suspects? All right, go. Well, I don't know. I have to go back in my memory bank. My filters used to be different, so I would tell you to go watch it, but I don't remember what it's rated or whether you should watch it or not. Um, it's a great movie, though. Um, and if there's any bad words or bad stuff, I, I forgot about that. Anyways, um, but Jesus is saying, don't you see, this is me, the stone that the builders rejected. I am the stone that the builders rejected. I am the, the sacrifice that is about to be given for you. I am the Savior that was foretold. He's trying to show them in every way possible through the language that they understand Scripture. These are the teachers of the Scripture. And he's saying, look, don't believe me. Look to the Scripture. Look at what you've studied your whole life. Look, it's giving evidence that I am who I say I am. And yet they rejected him. In their moment of decision, their heart hardened. And instead of submitting to Jesus, they became even more determined to get rid of Jesus. What will you do when that moment comes? That's really what, what we want to get to, right? I'm, I'm proud to give you the, a history lesson, and maybe you learned a little more Bible than you walked in here knowing, you know, Isaiah 5 now, and you know, Psalm 118. So, um, but, but ultimately, I want you to figure out how this intersects with your life. What, what difference does it make when you walk out the door today? That's what really matters. And, and one of the keys to that when we read Scripture is to look at the people who are getting it wrong <laughs> and say, how's my heart like that? So if you look at this, this thing and, and you, look, you zone in on the part where it says, oh, no, look, it said in there, um, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. There I am. <laughs> I'm those other tenants that are going to give him the fruits. That's me. Thank the Lord that he made me so I could be that person, uh, and I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, right? If that's how you approach it, you're in danger of being just like the Pharisees, right? They thought they were the good tenants, right? I don't know what they were thinking as Jesus was telling this story, but somehow they thought that they were the ones who were going to come in and do it the right way after all the wicked people did it the wrong way. And he's like, you're not getting it. And, and we, we risk the same thing. So I want to point out three things that are part of the, the Pharisees' mindset and their heart that, if we're honest, can, can creep into our hearts as well and that, that we need to evaluate and we need to think about this morning. The first one has to do with the inheritance, Right? It says that they were desiring the son's inheritance. It's kind of a weird part of the story, right? Because uh, the son comes, and when they see him, the, the wicked tenants say, oh, here's the son. Let's kill him, and then we'll be able to take his inheritance. And it showed that they, they misunderstood. They had been put in place as stewards of the vineyard, but they thought that they were the owners of the vineyard, right? And, and stewardship is something that's not common. We don't talk about it in culture, but we talk about it all the time in church because it's a, it's a radical uh, mindset difference uh, from, from following Jesus versus following the way of the world, right? The Bible tells us that everything that we have is given to us as a gift, and we are to be good stewards of it, to, uh, to, to manage it well, uh, to use it uh, efficiently, um, but ultimately, it's God's. We're managing it for him, but it belongs to him. 
they fell into the trap of saying, hey, if we kill off the heir, then we'll become the owners of this. This will become ours. And we can do whatever we want with it. Now, the interesting thing is, what was Jesus' inheritance in this? What was the fruit that we talked about being, being, being born? The fruit that he was looking for were hearts that were obedient to him, that would worship him, that would praise him, that would glorify him. And so, so when they try and take um, the love, the faith, the commitment, and the worship of the people, they're really trying to say all that stuff that belongs to Jesus, we want to we get that for ourselves. We want people to praise us. We want people to admire us. We want to use the people to advance our own cause. We want, to, uh, we want to make our name great so that we will be praised and glorified and honored. And if we want to be convicted, we just have to think about, hey, how much <laughs> this past week when I woke up each morning, how many days did I wake up and say, Lord, I am just here to glorify you. Every step I take today is going to be in an effort uh, to show people how great you are and point them to your glory and, and show them your greatness. Like, that's what I live for. That's what I'm here for. Lord, send me out, right? How many of us start the day that way? We don't. We wake up and we're, and we're kind of like, hey, how can I build my kingdom? How can I build my reputation? How can I build? And, and as a steward, right, as the tenants, he wanted them to work hard on the vineyard. He wanted them to cultivate and to nurture and to use everything they had to get to grow fruit. But the fruit wasn't for them. The fruit was, for, was meant to be for God. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go out and work hard, that you shouldn't go out and advance in your job, that you shouldn't study and do well at school, that you shouldn't, uh, that you shouldn't make the, the most of the money and the, and the things that God has given you and turn it into more, be a good investor. I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything. You should do all those things. But recognize that when the fruit comes in, the fruit's not for you right? If you're a brilliant artist, God gets the glory for that. If, if you're, if you're a, a, a wise and shrewd business person, God gets the glory for that. It's not to, to gain glory. It's not to gain your, your reputation. Think about this and the people that you have relationships with. Are you in relationship with them because you want um, to, uh, to help them to see the God that you love and serve and, and worship and you want them to learn to do the same? Or do you have relationships with people that, if you're honest, you're using them because uh, they can get you towards something that you want, right? Hey, if I'm friends with that person, they're connected with the right circle, so that's going to get me in over here. Hey, if I'm, if I'm friendly with this person at work, it's going to help me to get advanced and move up in the chain, right? If, uh, if I can get this person to follow me on Instagram, then, uh, then maybe that'll boost my follow. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, uh, what's our motivation? Externally, it might look the same, but, but internally, what we are aiming at, the goal that we're aiming at, the, the ultimate fruit that we're bearing makes all the difference. And so the way that the, these wicked tenants and the Pharisees got it wrong is they were desiring the son's inheritance. And if we're honest, all of us do this too. And we need to be aware of it, and we need to repent of it, and we need to ask God to change our hearts. Um, and, and we need to let him changes. And, and listen, I'm, I'm saying this as a pastor, and this is one of the areas where this is probably one of the biggest risks, right? Um, Charles uh, Spurgeon, famous pastor um, uh, from England, uh, he says this, he said, the hallmark of a faithful minister is his giving to God all the glory of any work that he is enabled to do. That which does not magnify the Lord will not bless men. He basically said, hey, anything that a minister, a church, a ministry is able to do, God needs to get all the glory for that. Anything that brings glory to that man, that ministry, that organization, 
is not beneficial to people. Uh, but we live in an era and an age of, of celebrity pastors and, and, uh, and churches whose brand identity is, is super strong. And that doesn't mean it's wrong in and of itself. Just because somebody knows, you know, uh, the name of a pastor, it doesn't mean that, that they're wrong. But, but we have to be super on guard. Uh, I have to ask the question, am I trying to draw people to myself? Am I trying to attach people to Riverside Church? <laughs> or am I trying to attach people to Jesus? And one of the, the telltale things, like the, one of the worst things you could ever do is if you came up to me and said, man, I, I love this church so much, I could never go to any other church. This is the only place where I could ever come to church. I would like want an Old Testament style, like rip my clothes and like throw ashes on my head right in, in mourning. Like, um, no, my goal is to connect you with Jesus where you can say, hey, no matter where God takes me in the world, no matter what I do, uh, if I can find a church that opens the Bible and preaches Jesus and preaches the gospel, I know that I can glorify him there. I can be connected to God anywhere, right? We, I want to connect you to Jesus. Um, but we have to continue to be on guard of that because there's a, there's a temptation to build your brand, to build your identity, to build your esteem and your name. And that's not what God wants, right? The second thing that they fell into, which was, which was detrimental, was living in fear of man. It doesn't really come out in the parable so much as it comes before and after. Remember, we were talking about uh, they wanted to say that John the Baptist was not of God and was a man, but they wouldn't do it because they were afraid of the crowds. And afterwards, after Jesus tells this, uh, this scorching tale on them, they want to arrest him, but they don't because they're afraid of the crowds. What kind of leader is that? that says, I know what's right, <laughs> I know what I believe I should do, I know what I want to do, I know what I think is the right thing to do, but I'm not going to do it because I'm afraid of what people will say. I mean, sadly, the answer is that's the kind of leaders we have all over the place, right? <laughs> if we're honest, um, it's easy to pick on politicians, right? But we see this over and over again where someone gets elected into an office to do a job and their main goal is to get reelected. And so the, the choices they make, the votes they make, they're all done very carefully with their finger in the wind, with pollsters trying to say, how will people respond to this vote? And they basically vote based on public opinion on what's going to keep their ratings high enough to get reelected. Rather than getting elected into an office and saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I got voted in to do the right thing by my people, I'm just going to do the right thing and let the cards fall where they may. If my people appreciate it and they reelect me, so be it. If they don't appreciate it, at least I did what I could while I was here. But once again, it's easy to pick on politicians. It's easy to pick on the Pharisees. But where do we do this in our own heart? How much of what we do during the week is based off of our perception of what's, what are people going to say if I say that? What are people going to say if they see me doing that? Uh, how, how, how are the people around me going to respond if they, if they know that I go to church or, or if they see a Bible sitting on my desk or if they, um, if they uh, you know, if they, if they overhear this conversation, let's talk in really whispered tones because... I don't want the other people to hear me talk about Jesus, but, uh, you know, right? How much of what we do is based off of what we perceive to be opinion versus what we know to be right? And the crazy thing is, like, why would you worry more about what people think than about what God thinks? Because people can judge you in the moment, but they don't have any eternal power over you. God won't judge you in the moment, but, but he ultimately does stand as your judge. He's willing to forgive you. And to judge is really to cast a final verdict, right? Uh, to judge somebody is to say, you are this. That I, I place this judgment upon you. God continually looks for us to change. He 
begs us to change. He asks us to change, and he believes that we can change. And if we change, he doesn't judge us based on who we were. He looks at us as who, who we're becoming because of Jesus, right? So, so um, fearing man's judgment is, is just uh, intellectually bankrupt, right? We need to worry about the highest judge. He's the one whose opinion really matters. He's the only one whose opinion really matters. It doesn't mean you have to be a bull in a china closet. You can do the right thing in, an, in a wise and intelligent way that doesn't unnecessarily ruffle feathers, that doesn't unnecessarily cause pain or hurt to people, right? We're called to speak the truth in love. So you can do what's right and in a way that honors God. That's what he wants you to do. Um, but they feared man and that, that hindered them. And, and if we're honest, a lot, we, we struggle with that too. Is there something that God's calling you to repent of or to think differently of related to that? The third thing is, uh, is related to the stone, right? Have I been broken? Will I be crushed? He says in that passage that, um, that the one who, uh, who trips on the stone, the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and then when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's kind of like two different ways of saying the same thing, but I, but I do see a, a differentiation in this that, that every one of us needs to be broken by the stone that is Jesus, Right? We have our identity that we create, the things that we value, our ambitions, our desires, and when we come face-to-face -face with Jesus, all of those things need to be broken on the rock of Jesus. We can't take all the stuff that we fashioned and created and take it over and sit it on the stone of Jesus and say, oh good, now I've got a, a better foundation for the thing that I was building. It doesn't work that way. When you come to Jesus, whatever you've created for yourself, the Apostle Paul said it this way. He's like, hey, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a Roman citizen. I was learned. I was zealous. And all that was rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He said, everything that I built up for myself, I threw it all away, and I began to build my foundation on a relationship with Jesus. And that's what we're called to do too. So if you're not broken by the stone that is Jesus, then you put yourself in danger of being crushed by the stone in the time of judgment, right? And he doesn't want that for anyone. God's patient. Remember, we looked at it, he's patient. He wants you to come. He wants you to come in obedience. He wants you to change your heart. He wants the, the, the false identity you've fashioned for yourself to be broken so you can receive the true identity in him. There's another incident in Scripture where, uh, where someone is brought to the point of their sin and I think it's important to look at their response as a contrast to what the Pharisees did. And it happens over uh, with King David in 2 Samuel. David was a great ruler. He was a man after God's own heart. He slew Goliath. <laughs> he led the nation of Israel. But older in his age, uh, he began to adopt some of these things. And so instead of going out to war, he sent other people to go out for war for him. And he stayed home where it was more comfortable. And he, found a, a, he saw a woman that was beautiful and he decided to take her for, for his own, even though she had a husband. And so he sent that husband to the front lines of the battle, and then he ordered the army to pull back from him, essentially murdering him. And so God goes to Nathan the prophet. See, I'm telling you guys, you don't want to be a prophet, right? They <laughs> get all our jobs. They're like, Nathan, I need you to go talk to David, right? And so here's what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. Here's a little spoiler, right? Like, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, can I tell you a parable? <laughs> Just start repenting right away. Be like, I did it. I'm wrong. Forgive me, right? Just, just do it right off the bat, right? There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup, 
and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now they came to the, a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare a meal for the guest who would come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And then he lays out for him, Here's what you did. You took what wasn't yours. You murdered her husband. You did all these things. Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord doesn't try and rationalize it. He doesn't try and defend it. He doesn't try and justify it. He doesn't deny it. He says, everything you said, I did it. And I'm deserving of the penalty that I declared. But here's what Nathan said. He said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, sorry, uh, the Lord also. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David admitted what he did. He repented. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord will forgive you. Now, there was a heavy price that he had to pay in that moment, in an earthly sense. When we sin, there's consequences to sin. But in God's eyes, forgiveness is always available if we're willing to let go of our hardness of heart and we're willing to turn to him and ask for it. What will you do when those moments come? Maybe this morning is a moment for you. Maybe God's speaking to your heart about something that you've been doing, been pursuing, been going after that you just know is wrong. And you can keep justifying it and you can keep building defenses around it or you can just come to him this morning and say, Lord, I've sinned. I don't deserve forgiveness, but I'm asking you to forgive me and I know that, that you've promised to forgive me because of what Jesus has done. See, Jesus was the only one who could stand there and, and, and in all trueness say, I didn't do it, I didn't sin, I'm not the man. I did nothing wrong. He's the only one who could ever claim that. And yet he didn't stop there. He said, I didn't do it, but I'm willing to take the penalty for those that did. I'm willing to take the penalty that that, that person deserves. The rich man who, who stole the poor man's you, I'm willing to take that penalty. The, the tenants that killed all the, the servants of God, I'm willing to take that penalty. I'm willing to take the penalty for the things that each one of us have done. He took all that upon himself at the cross. That's why he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. That's why he deserves all the fruit. That's why everything we should do should direct praise to him. That's how we need to orient our lives. Let's pray.